Blog Talk Radio. Ignite your life with passion and purpose. Your health, your wealth, your happiness. Make it good. This is Modern Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. A big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area, for being our sponsor, because a healthy body is a sexy body. And speaking of sexy bodies, I wonder if that has anything to do with our topic today. I don't think so, because we're talking about daring women doctors, physicians back in the 19th century. Think about it. In the 1800s, there were women doctors in the United States, and we are going to speak today with noted filmmaker Valerie Schoon about her new documentary, Daring Women Doctors, which follows the challenging and highly illuminating history of 19th century women doctors. The film was completed through an affiliation with Professor Schoon's film company, True Visions, Inc., and the Florida State University College of Motion Picture Arts, Torchlight Center Studios, as well as the Center for Advancement of Human Rights. So this is a project that had many arms wrapped around it to bring it to us, and it couldn't be better timed. It also received funding and support from women physicians in the Tallahassee community and a grant from the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. But first... Before you get to meet Professor Valerie Schoon, if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, you're going to want to join me Saturday, July 18th at our Modern Love Academy in San Francisco for an all-new training. It's called, Do You Know Your Love IQ? And leading into that training this coming Friday, July 3rd, we have a free teleseminar for you, which is the kickoff of Do You Know Your Love IQ, which is actually going to feature the number one relationship expert in the world. He sold more than 30 million books in 49 languages. Of course, you know I'm speaking about Dr. John Gray. This is an all-new interview. You will be in the first group to ever hear it. John and I just recorded a two-hour interview, and you'll get to hear the first excerpt on Friday, July 3rd. Run to Eventbrite right now. Grab your seat. May I repeat, there is no charge, so you have no excuse not to jump in and raise your love IQ. The secret to having a great love life, I always say, is learn better, love better. So please, if you need more information, hit me back at love, L-O-V-E, at docwade.com. That's D-O-C-W-A-D-E. Dot com for more information or just get that free ticket on Eventbrite. And if you have an issue with Eventbrite, send us a note. We will send you a link. So quickly, here's our Ask Dr. Brenda question. Keep these questions coming. They're very important because those questions tend to reflect what's on everybody's mind. This one, of course, is about the pandemic. It says, Dear Dr. Brenda, this ongoing pandemic-enforced 
isolation has been a disaster for my relationship. We just started dating in the spring. My boyfriend has tried to stay positive and engage with me, but his business keeps him at a distance. We haven't seen each other in over 60 days except on a screen. I feel like he's losing interest. What should I do? I don't want to lose him. Look, I don't want to. This is a challenge for people who've been married 10, 15, 20 years. Of course it's a challenge for a new relationship. The only thing you can do is to begin to bring some of that new relationship spice back into the relationship. Have a date night, plan a real date, have music, dance, have a glass of wine together if that's what you guys like to do, tell each other jokes, stories, watch a movie together, talk about that. Have dates. Many couples are just going, oh my God, we can't do anything. I was talking to a couple just yesterday that's celebrating their 20th wedding anniversary, and they were going, what do we do? I said, plan a date night. Plan a date night. Bring the spice back. So the two things are communication and being sure that you're clear that your relationship is being affected by forces outside and beyond your control and that you can take back control and begin to build a healthy relationship because this has nothing to do with one another. And footnote, the person you're relating to right now is probably not the person you met. You're relating to a stress case because this is a stressful time. Okay, keep those questions coming. I love getting your questions. You can send them to love at docway.com. Now let me tell you a little bit more about our wonderful guest today. Currently, Ms. Valerie Schoon is a professor of Florida State University Film School. She oversees script development of graduate and undergraduate thesis films. And during her tenure there, her students have won 10 student Emmys and six have been selected as student Oscar regional finalists. As an executive in her earlier life at Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Films, Miss Schoon's credits include the Golden Globe-nominated Great Debaters, starring Denzel Washington, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and The Wedding, both of which starred Ms. Halle Berry, as well as an adaptation of Beloved, which is a book written by Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Toni Morrison, whom we all miss. In addition, Miss Schoon served as studio executive at Warner Brothers and oversaw films like Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee, and the children's classic, The Secret Garden, directed by Marinaire. What an illustrious career. So wonderful to welcome you, Val, if I may call you Val, to Modern Love Radio. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, you have done so many wonderful films in your years as a filmmaker, but this is a bit of a departure this new film you've just worked on, Daring Women Doctors, Physicians in the 19th Century. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in filmmaking in the first place. Um, well, filmmaking in the first place, I mean, I've, I've long been a movie lover ever since I was a child, and, um, and I also really love history and literature. So it sort of becomes sort of a a natural blend. And um, I never really grew up thinking I would work in the movie business, but... Um, in college, I, I was a co-president of the filmmaking club, and we'd make little movies, but 
my friend who was also part of the um, club decided he was going to move to Hollywood. And I was like, what, you are? I guess I will too. So, um, so I just went out there kind of on a lark, sort of thinking I'll try it out for a year. Um, but I had law school in the back of my brain. However, you know, I was able to get my first job and then my next job, and, and it became a profession. Wow. Well, that's not a small thing, to get a job in Hollywood, and there are many people who would like to have broken in to the film business. How did you pull that off? Well, like most people in the movie business, it's, in a, it's a sort of an apprenticeship world, so everybody starts at the bottom. It doesn't really matter where you went to, to school. Um, and so my first job was actually being a receptionist, uh, answering the phone for um, Bob Chardoff and Erwin Winkler, who did all the Rocky movies, um, and they also did movies like Round Midnight and things like that. And so my literal job was answering the phone, but I heard about the job from a friend who said he had heard that they were looking for an assistant, and I kept trying to reach that office to talk about it, but I could never get past the receptionist. And so I finally just told her what I was calling about, and she's like, well, that job's filled, but if you want to come in for my job, you can interview. So I interviewed and I got the job. Um, and so I think part of it is being willing to start at the bottom. And then the other thing I tell my students is try to do more than your job description. So my job was to answer the phone, but I volunteered to read screenplays and do coverage, which is basically writing a two-page synopsis followed by critical comments um, on maybe something that's 100 pages or 120 pages, which is the usual length of the screenplay. So I just volunteered to do that because I was interested. I'd take the scripts home. I'd work on them. Um, I mean, work on the coverage. Uh, and then one day, Erwin um, Winkler, who was um, one of the producers there, he had a movie that was greenlit and was going to production. And I read it, and I basically thought, I'll tell him my critical comments on this as well. <laughs> so I, oh, I wow. That Irving up. Winkler is a legend for those who don't know. And you were giving him your comments? I love it. I know. What did he say? Along with my, my, my resume, you know, so that he would, you know, and he ended up liking my comments. And from that point on, he would sort of call me in periodically to hear what I had to say about things, um, about different screenplays. But truth is, I was, I had to move on because partly I couldn't afford my rent on a partial receptionist salary. But the I can imagine in Los Angeles. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I had roommates, but, you know, kind of out of college, but I um, was able to move on to become an in-house reader for a creative artist agency. And a lot of it had to do with working for um, Charlotte Winkler and working specifically, I'm sure, for Erwin Winkler with giving him giving my comments because he was a client of CAA. And, and, you know, so if they asked him about me, you know, he could say something positive. But when you um, apply for those jobs, you one of the things you have to do is do a sample coverage. They'll give you a book or a screenplay. Well, those and then, people who are interested in getting in the film industry, you you might be taking notes right about now on how Valerie broke in, but those of you who are curious about how people become filmmakers, here's one story of how a woman broke in in a way that really is is creative and it's serendipity, too. So, Valerie, update now. You, you go through the maze. You are able to break into the business. You end up at Warner Brothers working on this beautiful children's classic, Secret Garden, with Marinaire. And then from there, you go to Harpo with Oprah. Tell us a little bit about working with Oprah. I know everybody wants to know that. And then we're going to find out about your current project, which is about to hit the airwaves. Uh, well, working uh, um, for Harpo and working for Oprah was a great experience. I mean, I 
she, like me, is very interested in literature, and um, you know, it was it felt like uh, it felt like a real blessing to be able to spend my time reading *The Rise of Watching God* or um, *Beloved*, you know, or *The Wedding* by Dorothy West. You know, a lot of um, African American literature, um, and you know, working on turning that into film was exciting and rewarding. So I really thought it was a great a great experience for me. Oh, good for you. I'd like to be paid to read books, but I know you had to do more than just read it. It was about taking a critical eye and seeing how this project could be developed into an actual film. So bring us forward now. Bring us forward. You have a brand-new project, Daring Women Doctors, Physicians in the 19th Century. You've slogged up the ladder made it to the top with Harpo Films. Now you're a professor, and you have this documentary. Tell us what got you interested in these women doctors. Well, really, it's the same thing that got me interested in any of the movies that I've ever worked on, really. Um, It just has an inherent um, sort of, uh, let's see, it has an inherent sort of like not so much rags to riches, but more underdog you know, trivet, you know, um, succeeds, right? So it was a similar idea with um, the great debaters and a lot of the things that I've worked on and that I appreciate about literature is, um, is what would be true for the Daring Women Doctors. So I guess that's one thing to know, is that I'm always looking for sort of the hidden story, the story that people don't know a lot about, as well as, you know, conquering problems and challenges, so, a, you know, a bit of the classic underdog. Um, you so, know, this is a story I certainly knew nothing about. I didn't know there were women doctors. What year did these women get trained? Because this is really an astonishing story, I think. Um, it actually really is. I mean, the first women's medical college began in 1850, so that's 10 years before the beginning of the Civil War and 70 years before women got the right to vote. So wow. it was way ahead of its time. Um, and. It really came out of uh, the work of the abolitionists at the time. Um, a lot of people, were, well, first of all, there weren't a lot of people who were abolitionists. They were about 1% of the population, but they made quite a bit of a noise. And uh, one of the things that the women abolitionists were finding out as they filled out petitions to give to their um, politicians is that the politicians could throw those petitions in the trash because women didn't have the right to vote. So they didn't really count. So women started to realize, wait a second, we need to have, you know, citizenship in order to affect change in America, in order to sort of, you know, find a way to abolish slavery. So the women's rights movement really comes out of the abolitionist movement to a large degree. Um, And so those two things, along with some Quaker philosophies, you know, led to the uh, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania beginning in 1850. Huh, interesting because I didn't know there was a women's medical college. I mean, this really is unknown history. And also, you know, there's a parallel. I just heard an interview with Gloria Steinem recently who said that the modern-day women's movement came from the civil rights movement. So the women's movement and abolitionist movement started way back then together, and then the modern-day women's movement and the civil rights movement are linked. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when you started digging into the story and you featured 10 women in the documentary, what was it about these 10 women that drew you to their stories? Uh, well, you know, I think um, 
the first woman that drew me to the story was someone I learned about visiting a small museum in uh, Thomasville, Georgia, near where I live, um, a small African-American museum. And on the wall there uh, at the Jack Hadley Museum, they, he had a picture of Eliza Greer and that she, a picture of her, it said that she was a, um, a medical doctor in the 19th century and had maybe had an office in Thomasville and other places in Georgia. And also I had learned from, about her that in order to go to medical school, she had to um, pay for it. And that meant that she had to come south and pick cotton for a year and then go to medical school for a year and pick cotton for a year so that it turned, took her eight years to uh, complete her training and um, term doctor um, before going wow. into practice. And so I thought, well. And she'd been born an enslaved person, too. So she refers to herself as an emancipated slave when she writes the school to ask them if they would admit an emancipated slave, um, which they did. This is about 1897. So she's actually much later than the original, than the 1850 class. But at any rate, I thought, this is a movie or this is a documentary all by itself. And then I thought, but wait a second, where did she go to college in Richmond Medical School? And that's when I looked it up and I realized that the Women's Medical College um, of Pennsylvania had started in 1850 and lasted over a hundred years. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So this, this is why we need documentaries like this. Because who knew an emancipated slave, a woman who had been enslaved, could become a doctor back in the 1900s Never mind that there was a, a women's medical college. How how was that founded in the first place, Al? What's what's the history of that? Um, well, it was founded by mostly a collection of Quakers um, in in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, and they chartered. They they had a charter with the city, so it was sort of a you know a, a actual entity. Um, and I think at the beginning it was sort of touch and go with whether they'd have enough money, you know, for um, to survive. But they they managed to you know, scrape it together, you know, for, um, and then they finally, um, so in 1850, they began with a class of 40, and eight women graduated, and one of the women, um, even in that first class, was an African-American woman, um, but one of the women who graduated, Anne Preston, was a real example of that convergence of abolition and women's rights, because she came out of Chester County, she was, um, she was a secretary in the anti-slavery society there, um, and at the age of 37, she was in the first class at this medical college, and she graduated. She actually did the she did the class twice. She back then medicine was also really changing, and there wasn't a very sort of um, well um, established path to become a medicine. Some people a doctor. Some people would just throw up a shingle. Other people were coming at it through homeopathic means and. And they were sort of right. leaving and heroic There is medicine. a big, there is a really, this is one of the things I do know about medicine in the U.S., is that there is a huge movement to suppress homeopathic practitioners, that the yes. doctors trained in what we now consider traditional medicine did everything possible to suppress the homeopaths who were coming here from France, Germany, and countries where they're, and, and also in the U.K., Huge groups of homeopaths. Uh, Just yes, but, yes. No, no, no. That's not. That's not, that's um, correct to some degree. I think. Although I was just want to point out that the women medical college, a lot of them, um, some of them were practicing or you know, were still utilizing homeopathic methods. 
Um, right. And part of the reason for that was because um, the the regular medicine at that time, or what they called heroic medicine, was really very challenging for the body. It was a lot of purging, a lot of, you know, throwing up, and a lot of just aggressive measures, you know, that, and so that's actually how homeopathic medicine really got a foothold and became very popular because it was more gentle and it wasn't killing you at the same time, you know, and so, um, but then um, there's also other ways of approaching medicine at that time. There was like the water cure and different, different things that people were doing, trying to get away from the aggressive heroic medicine. Um, but so you're right. why, why was it, I'm just curious, why was the women's college established? Was it to make sure that women were treated by women rather than men, or what was the impetus for that? Well, part of it was just recognizing that women have the capacity for it, you know, so, and, and out of Quakers' belief that, you know, there isn't a differentiation between the the value of one person over another, and if they have the inner light, they should follow it, you know. So if men can do it, women can do it. And even within their own faith, you know, women were um, Quaker leaders, you know, at the time, you know. And so there, was, there wasn't this prohibition about women not speaking the way there might have been in other faiths. So it, was an, it, it made more sense. But part of it was, yes, the argument was partly that women um, would be within their sphere, they were just expanding their sphere of influence um, by, you know, uh, treating, treating people on a medical level. Um, but, but some parts of it was that it was good for men and women could do it as well. And there certainly was an argument that, you know, um, in terms of decorum and what would be acceptable, you know, women treating women certainly beat out men treating women. Yeah. So what what happened when these women came out of medical school? Did they meet with opposition, resistance? What was it like for them? Um, yeah, I think they met with a lot of resistance and opposition while in medical school um, because, you know, it was difficult for the schools to secure teachers because sometimes the other medical colleges, the male medical colleges, would, would forbid their professors from also teaching at the women's medical college or they would penalize them, or they wouldn't allow them to join the medical societies. Um, so there was a lot of hostility and resistance to women practicing or even going to medical school. And there's one really well-known episode, actually there were others, but this one in particular I think had a lot of um, press, was that they, women had gotten permission to, um, women, uh, students had got permission to go to a, a lecture where male students would be as well. Because you know, Philadelphia has a lot of different medical colleges, um, and so they were joining um, the men. Um, and but um, they had something called the jeering episode, where the women, the men, basically jeered the women and sort of drummed them out of the room, and um, and 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 it hit the papers in a big way, and everybody had an opinion about this. But it actually, ironically, made some people sympathize more with the women because they found the men to be just too ungentlemanly. You know that they were spitting tobacco juice and being so um, aggressive turned some opinions towards the women. You know because they had been in their rights to be there. They had been invited to be there. That's interesting, and that is that's one of the things about human nature. There is a part of many people that responds more to what is just, what is right, and that's our great hope right now. Is we're fighting off a global pandemic, and we're elevating the fight for racial justice around the world, is that good people with good hearts will say, you know, what is just 
is what is right. So that's, that's an important part of the story. That's kind of part of the human journey, that people who are being suppressed and oppressed, whether it's women doctors or black people around the world, that somehow there's something in us as human beings that doesn't want those things to continue. I think there's awareness that it hurts everybody. So, Val, what is it you want people to take away from the film? Now, first of all, tell everybody when and where it's airing, and then what do you want us to take away? Well, it's going to be airing nationally on PBS so um, through the, throughout the month of July. So it's going to be a sort of check your local listing um, scenario in order to find it. So what you should do is check your TV, um, your PBS, your local PBS, look at the TV schedule for the month of July, um, and that should help you find out when it's playing. Um, there are certainly a lot of dates in San Francisco if you're in that area, but it's actually in 90% of the country, so you sh- most people should be able to find it. And also... Um, 90% of the country, that's huge! Notice yeah. how she just glossed right through that, ladies and gentlemen. Getting, yeah. a, getting a program on the air on PBS in 90% of the country is amazing. So this is an important story. And it also coincides with the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, doesn't it? Exactly. Yes, it does. It's, it, it, it's part of the celebration of women um, winning the right to vote in uh, 1920. Also, I... Um, wanted to say that after it airs on your television or on your on your PBS station, it will be available to stream so um, for about 30 days. So you'll be able to see it that way too, see it again, or if you miss it, you know, you can see it that way. Oh, so it'll be on both. Okay, so it'll be on the regular schedule and then it'll stream. Okay, I want to okay. clarify that because I actually sent out a note and I put it down wrong. I said it would be streaming first but it's actually going to air on the regular schedule. Everybody got that? And I will correct that and make sure that it goes out correctly. So, Val, what is most important for you as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, that you want people to take away from this film? Well, you know, I just want them to sort of um, hopefully enjoy it, you know, enjoy um, learning something new about our history um, and also to be sort of inspired by these women and to consider the obstacles that they face. It, I find it can fortify me when I think, wow, they hadn't even fought the Civil War yet, and these women were becoming doctors, you know, and in fact, um, you know, they, uh, you know, I think maybe had to close for a couple of years, you know, during the Civil War, but the fact that there's so many obstacles and that people persevered and were able to affect positive change and to be effective doctors in their communities, um, you know, uh, several of the African-American doctors um, would go south and, and work in communities where um, emancipated slaves, you know, were in desperate need of medical care, and they were able to sort of make a difference. So I find that to be inspiring um, for myself. So hopefully that's what other people will also feel. So go through that one more time, because I missed, I missed that. Somehow I want to make sure I got this right. So the story of these women is they got, especially the the fact that there's this African-American woman doctor, they got their degrees just after emancipation and were able to work with some of the formerly enslaved people. Did they set up practices in those areas? Were they like sort of traveling doctors? How, How did that all work? 
Well, I, I think it, you know, well, I'll tell you about one, one woman named Rebecca. Well, can you come a little closer to the mic, please? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes, that's better. Thanks. Um, there's one woman named Rebecca Cole who graduated in, I believe, 1867, so shortly after the Civil War, African-American woman. Um, and she practiced, she did go south. I think she went to, I forgot, South Carolina or something for a couple of, uh, for a few years, but she also worked in D.C. So she worked with a lot of, um, you know, African-Americans who were coming out of slavery, so who were impoverished or who had already been living there. And she eventually opened up a practice with a another graduate, a white graduate, in um, uh, specifically for, um, in the poor parts of Philadelphia, also helping unwed mothers. So they were really, you know, ahead of their time. But each of these women, you know, would affect some women, um, would go and travel to, you know, other states, you know, in order to establish practices. And then people there usually weren't that, couldn't afford to be that picky about whether you're a male or female. Um, there was another woman who um, became a surgeon in South Carolina and had a booming practice. And there were also some women who, of, of whatever race, who decided to become missionaries um, and travel to China or um, India um, and even though we look at missionaries somewhat, you know, we recognize that, you know, there's more than health care than you're sharing. And I think they were upfront about that. But I still marvel at the idea that you would travel to another country and establish hospitals. Some of these hospitals actually still exist, you know, that these women started back in um, the 1870s. Wow. So traveling to India or China in the 1870s meant they had to travel for a month on a ship to get there. Right, with no internet. So there's no way to sort of confirm everything the way we do now, you know, before we go anywhere. You know what right. I mean? Right. You know, then it's just like you're by yourself. And actually, it used to be that missionaries had to be married. But out of the same medical college, you know, came the idea that a woman could go on her own. Mm. So on so many levels, this was really the beginning of the women's movement. I get it. I see how women's suffrage sh- could come out of this, because here are women proving their intelligence, their determination, their persistence, their willingness to serve humanity, to go to the ends of the earth if they had to, because back in those days, getting to, as I said earlier, Asia or India, it was the ends of the earth, and also being willing to be humanitarian that all people deserved high-level medical care. Because we still yeah. have problems in our medical system today with racism and sexism. Right. I mean, they're they're so well-documented. Right. And I would say that they, they were just, they were sort of um, dovetailing, you know, you know, they were all kind of intertwined. And everybody knew everybody in those, in those movements. So, um, uh, you know, so the medical doctors, you know, knew the women who were, you know, active speakers on the abolitionist circuit and who were women's rights um, speakers, you know, as well. So it was a, a sort of a tight group, you know, of, of people that knew each other. So not all women doctors were activists in the women's rights movement at all. But I'm you know, sorry, we're losing the sound just a little bit on you, Val. I said not all women, not all women doctors were active in the women's rights movement. But the argument is that just by practicing medicine, they helped to change how people viewed women. They could see women as professionals, as women who could diagnose and 
treat a family or do surgery. And so when you see, see somebody functioning in that way, it does help to enlarge your view of what a woman can do. Right. It reminds me of that television show um, that was on for a long time, many seasons. Uh, God, what was the name of that show? Doctor? Yes, Dr. Dr. Quinn. Dr. Quinn, American Medicine Woman. Yeah. I'm sorry. Your sound is fading. We need you to just get closer to the mic, please. Is that better? That is better, yeah. It's going in and out a bit. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Dr. Quinn, that's right. Dr. Quinn, yes. Right. Originally, actually, Brenda, my first goal was to make is, and it remains my goal, is to make a, a movie about these women doctors and or and or a TV series or a limited TV series. And um, but I thought that I would start with a documentary since I had to do the research anyway, and it becomes something of a proof of concept. Excellent. Well, we're all going to send you Mondo Energy, so you'll get to do a series about these incredibly courageous women. We know they met with opposition. They had to overcome the odds. And just monumentally brilliant, strong women to pull off something like that. And I love it that they were willing to take their gifts wherever they were needed and to establish hospitals. It just It's amazing. And when you talked about the two women taking care of, the two women doctors taking care of unwed mothers who in that era were considered you know, the the fallen, the dregs of society. And they did the right thing by taking care of those women. Quite a story. Wow. So what's next for you, Val? What's going to be next for you? Well, the next thing for me is going to be... And again, um, I'm so sorry. I can barely hear you. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Is that better now? A little bit. I've got my volume up as high as I can. Me too. I'm keeping it high. Let me keep it right close to my mouth like that. That helped. What you just did help. The sound is up. Okay, please, what's next for you? Um, Well, next is um, continuing to develop the film um, and to raise money so I can make the narrative film, the the film version of the documentary. Um, And also I have another documentary that um, I'm completing about the history of the enslaved and plantations in Florida, in northern Florida, where I live. When do you expect that one will be done? We're going to be looking for more of your projects. The, um, the documentary on the enslaved um, will be done, we're hoping, for uh, September. Oh, it's coming right up. That's great. Yep. Yeah. Super. So we'll have that. A documentary on the enslaved, and again, couldn't be more timely given the current racial justice movement. Very important to illuminate the journey of the people who survived that enslavement period. And we wouldn't be here today having this conversation if our ancestors hadn't survived. So, Val, also with the narrative film, those have a longer timeline. How far off would that be? Um, with the narrative film, um, you know, I think part of it is we actually have a screenplay that we have written. So part of it's just going to be raising financing, um, okay. which I'll be able to turn my attention to. I'll probably um, do some crowdfunding and also um, turn towards um, potential partners in Hollywood. Excellent. So anybody who's interested in crowdfunding Val's film, 
hit her back. Val, we'll have to get that information from you, and we'll post that along with this wonderful interview with you. Now, what do you want to leave us with today? What do I want to leave you with today? You know, I that's a good question. I think I just want to, you know, for me, you know, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm always interested in, in history and I'm also interested in the hidden story. But I, I mean, I love movies as well. But one of the things that, that resonates for me about history is that you can't really deny it, <laughs> you know, that it actually happened. Whereas if you see a narrative film, you can dismiss it and think, yeah, well, they made that up. But with history, you can't do that. So I find it to be quite inspiring. So I guess that's what I'm hoping people will, will, will feel as they watch these projects. They'll feel inspired and fortified in these challenging times that we're in now. So this will fortify us. This will be vitamin F, your film vitamin. Everybody get to PBS. Look for this great project. It's called Daring Women, Daring Women Doctors. Physicians in the 19th Century, and we're talking with filmmaker Valerie Schoon, professor at Florida State University, Film Academy, and a Hollywood veteran of some really great films with Oprah, with Warner Brothers. Val, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And everybody, let me remind you, mark your calendars now, July 3rd. That's this coming Friday, a free teleseminar. It'll be via Zoom. Get your ticket on Eventbrite. Do you know your love IQ? If your love life isn't everything you need and want it to be, or if you want a better love life, or if you are looking for love, raising your love IQ is something that is essential because most of us get no training whatsoever in how to create, how to build, how to grow, how to enhance, how to heal a love relationship, and that is what we're going to focus on with Dr. John Gray and if you want more info, hit me back at loveandatdocwade.com and mark your calendar because on Saturday, the, the, once a month, we have a full live training. And, of course, everything is on Zoom right now. You all know that. But that training is coming up, and that is on Saturday the, is that the 16th or 18th? Hold on, you guys, because I'm looking it up, so I give you the right date. Hold on, stand by, stand by, stand by, stand by. It's going to be Saturday, July 18th. Yes, I was right. Okay, it's such a pleasure to be with Valerie. Thank you to Cliff Dunning, our executive producer, and to all you modern lovers. Remember, when you learn better, you do love better. We'll see you soon at one of our modern love trainings. Blessings. 